This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 68. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 68 you're listening to, and this episode is brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. Welcome again. Coffee mug in hand. I am ready to bring you another great show. My wife got, got this for me, the Contigo Cup. Yeah. They don't sponsor the show. I would love for them to do that because, you know, I'm looking for you know, coffee-oriented sponsors, that would be fantastic. Anyways, they make this uh, stainless steel cup. It's got a uh, plastic top that I can't even get off here. Yeah, and it seals really well. And if you uh, drink large amounts of coffee like I do, and you are prone to, or paranoid at least, about spilling your coffee on your audio equipment, such as your laptop sitting close by or your keyboard, this is a great cup because it's got this little, got this little, switch on it and then you can lock it too i don't know why you'd lock it but anyways it's already locked it's great i think the only drag is is that when i first got it you could definitely taste the plastic yeah so i'm sure there's other ones out there but i'm kind of a fan of this one and it works for me so anyways so this is not a coffee show really i swear it's an audio show and and um i have a great guest for you coming up i have um mr john paterno and you might know John. He's out there in the world. Uh, he's done some work with Robbie Williams, Brad Paisley, Robin Ford, uh, Roger Manning of Jellyfish fame, uh, Tim McGraw, uh, Joan Osborne. Um, who else? Who else? He's worked alongside Mitchell Froom and my favorite, Chad Blake and Joe Ciccarelli. So John's coming up. We uh, I can't remember where John and I met, but uh, anyways, we saw each other at NAM, and we uh, decided that it would be a good thing to have him on the show and he was willing to answer questions, and I was willing to ask them. So John Paterno coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Uh, let's see. So um, it's been, uh, it's been well, it's, essentially it's been a week since we had our Part 3 discussion with uh, James Linden Schmidt over at uh, Real Traps. And I got to say, I'm still super happy with the way uh, things worked out here in terms of placement of the traps. Still experimenting with a couple things. Going to experiment with something overhead. I think uh, I just haven't had the time to really focus and shoot shoot the differences uh, with and without. So I'll let you know how that goes. What else is going on? You know, I spend a fair amount of time on Facebook, as I'm sure many of you do. And, you know, the birthdays keep coming up. You see birthday, you know, so-and-so's birthdays today, and, you know, you wish them happy birthday. And, you know, it just makes me reflect on, on the fact that I'm getting older. And um, this is me kind of trailing off into discussion of retirement and uh taxes and all that kind of stuff it's interesting well because we're close to april and uh i've been thinking about taxes and so i've been you know kind of updating a spreadsheet for uh the accountant to make sure it all gets done right but the retirement thing and and this is not an ad or or sponsorship in any way shape or form but being that i'm just not uh savvy when it comes to uh, retirement or the stock market or any of that crap. Um, I chose to go with this thing called betterment.com. Uh, I think I have a link. Yes, I have a link on the, um, uh, WCA recommends page. If you're not very well versed in, in the whole world of investing and saving for retirement, uh, I encourage you to check this out. It's I'm not a broker. I'm not going to advise you. I'm just going to say it's working for me. Uh, 
the difference is, is, you know, being freelancers, which many of us are, some of you are, you know, have, have day gigs and that's cool. And you've got something going on, but you know, for me, um, the idea of retiring from audio seems, I don't know, I you know, as long as somebody's willing to pay me and my ears work, I mean, why, why retire? But anyways, I'm going to get older and, uh, as all, all of you are as well, what, um, what I found is the difference with uh, this Betterment thing. It's robo-investing, so there's no broker that you talk to, and it's uh, all investing in what is known as Vanguard Funds, which is a well-known uh, investment company that's been around for many years, and I guess uh, many people like that. I don't know. I don't know the difference, but I will tell you that uh, with the app on my phone, it just makes me well aware of how little I have saved. And if you are concerned about that and you want to invest, you should maybe check this out because I think it'll, you know, get your attention and it'll at least get you thinking about it. Whether or not this is the right thing for the long term, this whole Betterment thing, I don't know. But check it out. Go to Betterment.com and investigate on your own. You make your own decisions and see what you think. That's my little uh, investment uh, spiel for the day. Not advice because, like I say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just you know, trying to make sure that I'm covered in, in the long term. Hope I am covered in the long term with uh, regards to this. So it's tough because, you know, we get money uh, from clients and, you know, it, it's feast or famine. When it rains, it pours, you know, you, you want to take that money and pay bills that maybe you're backlogged on because, you know, it's been a while since you've worked or you're going to pay rent or your mortgage or kids college or I don't know. I don't know, all the expenses that you have. And if you don't have a lot of expenses, you know, maybe you're tempted to just reinvest in gear. And that's fine, but it's something to consider. You might want to start funneling off some of your money into retirement so that uh, you have something to fall back on in your old age. Something to consider. Um, all right, well, that's it for that. Um, let's get right into our interview with Mr. John Paterno. Let's listen to what he has to say. John Paterno here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being here. No, thanks for and, having uh, me. And I'll just uh, I'll start off with a little different approach with you, and ask, how's this working out for you? <laughs> how's, how's this recording thing going for you? <laughs> I don't know. Do we have more than two hours here with this thing? I, I, don't, I don't really know. You know, it's the same. Uh, I, I can't speak for everybody else. I just know for me, it's you know, it's the typical kind of roller coaster. It's just that yeah. that the trough seems that like they last a bit longer than they used to before things start picking up again. Sometimes it's just a matter of, of, of being persistent. You know, sometimes my, my career is like my basketball game. I hit the rim a lot, but it doesn't go in. But, but what do you do? You just keep moving forward. You make phone calls, you, you get in touch with people, you stay in touch with people. And if they don't call back or if, if it doesn't work out, it's not on them. At least you've made an effort. So, and then sometimes it's great. Sometimes people are right back on you. And then other times it's just like, you got to chase some stuff down. And I tracked down an artist who I really, really like through somebody that I know in New Zealand. I heard mm -hmm. the artist was living here in LA in Venice. And so I wrote my friend in New Zealand because they were Twitter friends. And I asked if they were personal friends. And uh, yes, ended up having meeting with this, this artist twice. And, you know, she's doing a record with somebody else. But at least I made the intro. At least I made the effort. And, you know, maybe something will happen in the future. And she's cool. And we got on. So that wasn't really an issue. So 
sometimes it's just a matter of putting yourself into different circles and, and waiting for, for a, a new wave to kind of, you know, pick you up and take you someplace. It's interesting. The troughs are longer than they used to be. You know, if you want to make money, <laughs> yes, yeah. the troughs tend to be a little bit longer, you know? I mean, there's people don't have as much money anymore. There aren't as many records being made. I mean, there's just something in the, was it the New York Times last week that was talking about hmm. sales and how, you know, vinyl sales are up and artists are actually making more money on vinyl than they are on anything else. But what does that mean relative? The music industry is down, what, 40% or 50% of where it was 10 years ago? Yeah. So that that's a lot of money not floating around or not investing in artists. And, you know, so it affects us all. So what do you do in those those down periods? Well, try to learn as much as I can about whatever, because everything feeds into everything else, whether I'm cooking or whether I'm learning some new software or I'm transcribing a guitar solo or something, just, just things to keep myself active and, and to just find new and interesting ways to look at the world. Because I think when you do actually get into doing the work, those kinds of things are really important. They help you relate to artists better. They help you to come to solutions faster. And they yeah. might be more unique solutions than whatever your rote kind of go-to thing is. I mean, we all have our kind of go-to things, but but it's always nice to kind of switch it up or, or, or experiment a bit when, when you can as well, right? Yeah, it is. It's So spending that, that downtime educating and, and evaluating and taking it, taking it all in and just trying to uh, retool a little bit, I think, is is a very common thing. Mm -hmm. When you're going to try to work with an artist, are you trying to like go all in and produce, engineer, mix, or do you try to like segment off and try to get like, ooh, here's an artist who I know is making a record. So do you ever approach him and say, hey, want to throw my hat, in the, you know, or my name in the hat to uh, be considered for mixing? Every once in a while I do. Sometimes I'm not that bold. And mm -hmm. I probably should be. I'm sure a lot of other people have said as well, your gigs come from word of mouth. You know, people have either heard a record you've done or through it's, or it's a recommendation through somebody who knows your work. If I have somebody, in, an intermediary that's going to introduce me to that person, that's usually a bigger help than me doing a cold call. Mm -hmm. So I can't say I've had very much luck with the cold call thing because it just always feels weird to me, like going up to somebody and kind of oh yeah, you should hire me to do this kind of a thing. And I'm sure there are more subtle ways to do that. You know, it's like doing a discography and and this happened to me one time early on. I, I, I had done some overdubs on a Sheryl Crow record and I ended up hanging out then so a little bit later with, with uh, Trina Shoemaker who recorded this whole record almost, except for the bits I did and maybe Chad Blake did or, or whatever. And I had that on my discography because she had asked what I had done. And when she looked at it, I felt really weird because yes, technically I worked on the Sheryl Crow record, but did I really do the record? No. And so me using that little thing to to try to promote my career because I used to put somebody's name on there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I always feel like if, if someone really wants to to use me, they'll they'll find me. And and if someone really wants, you know, to engage with me and then figure something out, then I'm totally down with it. Do you do you feel like there should be rules for uh, I don't know rules of or um, like a code of conduct or etiquette when it comes to credits and stuff like that? Well, you know, it's it's such a weird thing. You could record a vocal on a record and you can get a Grammy. And then from then on you can say, "Oh, I'm a Grammy winning engineer." And you know, but what did you actually, you know, 
I think credits and those kinds of things, I, I think you got to, if you're interested in looking at somebody for their work, you got to kind of look at the body of their work. You have to see what they did. Mm-hmm. And, and if that's the case, you know, and I'm happy to rest on or, or, or to live by that, by, by the things I've done, by the things I've, you know, but the things I've put out there in the world. It is interesting. I mean, you can get involved in a record on such a minor level and still wind up with a Grammy. And I don't know that that matters to to most of the people that that have ever hired me. You know, I mean, I'm not getting hired because I have a Grammy. You know, I I got a, I won a Latin Grammy for a record I did in 2004. Mm-hmm. Got it in the best possible way because I was never listed on any of the nomination stuff. It was a singer songwriter album of the year. And this this songwriter Soraya won, and after the fact, it was determined it was a singer, it was an album award, so I was able to get one, and so was, and so was she as the producer. She got a second one for it. But you know, whether or not that ever happened, it's still one of the best records I've ever worked on. The spirit was amazing. I flew down to Miami. We cut the record in four days. Again, recommendation through my buddies in Miami, guitar player Dan Warner and a drummer named Lee Levin. And I flew down there. The spirit was amazing. And she had been coming off uh, two years of uh, breast cancer treatment. And the whole record was in Spanish, but she would explain to me what the songs were about. And, you know, so I have that experience. And then I have this little trophy on the wall. So whether or not I got the trophy, the experience was so much more rewarding at the end of the day. Yeah. I I think I asked Vance, pal, long ago, you know, do you think getting a Grammy has, uh, basically yielded more work or more money. And, and his reply at the time, if I recall correctly, was no, not at all. It's had no bearing, but to some, it's like, to me, it's like this whole package. It's like, you could be a completely unknown engineer, get a little bit of a something from, you know, as we said, doing like an overdub on a record, getting a Grammy, then that, starts to maybe snowball into some endorsements. But does an endorsement, you know, just because you got, and this is the other funny little cult of celebrity that we have too, you know, does having your picture in a magazine or in an ad, does that validate you? You know, is that self-validation or is that just, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, I, I, granted, I mean, I've done these, I've done these things for people and, and I do them because I, you know, I genuinely like the people who are asking me to do it. Yeah. And, and it's not for the free gear. I, I rarely get stuff free. It's more for like, you know, I really like this thing. And if, you know, if there are three people out there who care what I have to say or who like what I do and think that, you know, that maybe this stuff will help them then that's cool. I don't mind doing that, but am I going to get on some water skis, you know, and ski around the water and, you know, and, and, and yeah, this is the such and such thing. Here I am on my water skis. I mean, you know, what's the point? You know, I don't think I'm a name brand person, uh, in the, in the audio world. I know, I know lots of people like the show, but I think that like, if you look at, um, some of our more popular peers, I think, I just wonder how it looks like if you're an up and coming engineer and you open up a mix magazine or a tape op or whatever, and you see a picture of some of the people that we know, Mm -hmm. like Ross or Vance or Mm -hmm. Andrew, you know, what's the perception from the up and coming engineer? And really it's like marketing to ourselves. Exactly. And, And that's the other thing, you know, is any of this stuff going to get you a, a gig? Because the, you know, does, does this artist that I met, you know, a couple of months ago, do they really care that I use 
you know, Focal speakers or isoacoustic stands or, you know, or, or violet microphones. I mean, they don't care. They just want someone they can work with and someone they can hang with and someone that'll help them make a, the record they want to make, you know, and that's on every level, you know, either as an engineer or as a mixer or as a producer, as a mastering engineer. I mean, that's all people really want. When, when I get asked the question, well, what gear are you using when you master, you know, then you know you're in trouble because it, it means most of the time that they're not a, that experienced or they've read just enough magazines to make them kind of dangerous. So it's, it's, it's a funny little world we live in in that sense, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, we should have uh, endorsement deals for using our brains. <laughs> Matt Boudreau uses his brain to do this. <laughs> John Paterno uses his brain to do this. Yep. Just to examine the cult of personality within the recording world a bit, just to kind of riff on that, it's interesting if you look at some of those, some of our peers who are more, I'm not going to say obscure, but a little more, let's look at two personalities, Chad Blake and Steve Albini. Mm -hmm. Other than the, what's the mic company? I'm spacing. What's the mic company that, uh, Josephson. Right. There's always the one Joseph, Josephson mic that Albini is quoted for, mm -hmm. but he doesn't technically appear in the ad. And Chad Blake, I mean, shit, I struggle to even find pictures of Chad Blake. Now there's, of course, <laughs> videos of him on Mix with the Masters. Right, right. It's, it's some of those more, um, what would you call that? Not hermits, but... Well, guys that guys that don't really get really into that game too much, right, right, and they're like cultish, like people like talk about them as if they're like the the like they're Bigfoot. Man, I I was uh, I was on the phone with this buddy of mine uh, in Nashville yesterday, and we were talking about Chad, and I assisted Chad for the first five years of my career. Yeah. I was I, I assisted on Kiko and Colossal Head and the Latin Playboys, Suzanne Vega, American Music Club. I worked on all of these records, and Chad did one endorsement at the time. Well, let's I'll flip back to the endorsement thing for a second. Okay. And Tech Twenty One wanted him to do um, a quote because he was using the Sans amp, and and it got out that he'd used it on Kiko a bunch, and on Suzanne's ninety nine point nine, and and. You know, he used it on drums. He used it on all kinds of stuff. And it was great. Mitchell popped his head. Mitchell Froome popped his head in the control room. Chad was on the phone with somebody. And he goes, he was on the phone with Tech 21. And he goes, Mitchell, I need a quote. What should I say? And Mitchell goes, he had a cup of coffee in his hand. And goes, tell him it rocks like a moose. And Mitchell walked out of the room. And Chad goes, yeah, it rocks like a moose. <laughs> Two months later, the ad comes out. <laughs> Tech 21, used by Chad Blake, quote unquote, it rocks like a moose. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it was awesome. It was so funny. But, you know, I don't know if Chad's ever, I'm sure Chad would be up for doing something like that. But but I, I think he kind of just does his thing and, and, and he doesn't really make a big fuss about it. He's not really, you know, he's talked about gear in the past. I mean, he talked about the distressor in interviews when that, you know, when that first came out and when that was going on. And so he's never been afraid to talk about stuff, but I don't think people ever really tracked him down or, or he's not an AES guy or a NAM show guy or anything like that. He never was. And and so just back to our comparison, it's mm. just like, you know, the we can appear in ads in magazines and online and essentially we are marketing to ourselves to the, to our own community 
but it's it's those people like Albini and Chad Blake, and I'm not saying that you know our our, mm-hmm. our friends and peers that do these ads are not successful, mm-hmm. but from an artist perspective, look at the demand for those people, right? And you know the uh, well, I mean, and then look at somebody like um, Mutt Lang. I mean, geez, I don't even know what the guy looks like. Right there, there are very few published pictures of him. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's like it's like posting what you're working on on Facebook. You know, it's like, oh, I'm in the studio today with so and so. You know, back in my day, I would never do that. I was always so even if Facebook was around, even today, I don't do it. I don't. I don't say, oh, I'm here today. And uh, because it's out of respect to the artist, you know, it's mm-hmm. like maybe the artist doesn't want people to know that they're in the studio or maybe, it, you know, that there used to be this whole kind of mystery, but this cool yep. kind of mystery because a whole kind of mythology developed around it as well. And this is the other thing I wanted to briefly curl back about Chad. Talking to my friend from Nashville, he's like, yeah, I'm friends with this guy and he's a Chad Blake freak. And, you know, he has all these theories and he heard that this happened and he heard that that happened and a lot of it was just not true, but it made me kind of laugh because now this whole mythology has built up around Chad Blake. And I think it's awesome. I love it. It's awesome. I love it because it just kind of, it gets people's imagination going and, and people hear a bit of a fact and then they put their own spin on it, which happens all the time. You know, that's kind of, that's the world we live in really. You know, I mean, I made a mistake years ago. I, I talked about, uh, an Ann Peebles tune, I Can't Stand the Rain, in an interview. And I thought they had played along with the drum machine, the way Sly and the Family Stone had done, like on the Fresh record and things like that. But I was corrected by somebody saying that, no, those sounds, that stuff was played live. But I had built up this whole thing in my head, thinking, how did they do that? Oh, it had to have been this way. And But I think that's, that's healthy in a way, because... It, it it imagines it makes you think about things and how records are done, how how to get that sound and how to make it happen for yourself. You know, I think a lot of that is kind of lost. Our, our imagination's really gone out the window with stuff. We're, we're a lot of people are so focused on these narrow kinds of things, a hit record, quote unquote. So I love the mythology. I love hearing stories. I love hearing what people think. Mm-hmm. You know, and then memories also fade too. You think you you did something at one point, and then you go back and you look if you have notes or if you have a photo and go, oh, no, I, I totally remembered that wrong. So it could even be yourself that doesn't even have it right at that point, you know, if it, there's enough distance. I, I just, I have to tell you that Colossal Head is one of my favorite records. It's interesting as, um, as I go on and interview people, it makes me realize that uh, I don't have as deep a knowledge of the credits of records that I really like as, as, as I think I do, because mm-hmm. I, this is a perfect example. I had no idea you worked on that, on that record. I don't know if I tracked any one tune, but I did a lot of recording on that record. I did a lot of overdubs and, and a lot of vocal comps and, and, and things like that on that record due to whatever circumstances were going on at the time. I was pretty involved in that. And there are some, you know, I listen to it and there's a vocal comp or two and I'm like, oh man, I wish I could have had that back or I wish I would have had Pro Tools at the time because I would have fixed that in a second. I did a video for Pure Mix recently. Uh, the Robbie Williams folks used one of a tune that I had mixed for them several years ago to do this uh, instructional video for, for Fab DuPont's company, Pure Mix. So 
I mean, I even talked, I think I talk about him in there. I mean, he was my mentor. He was, he was the guy. I mean, I worked with a lot of great people around that time when I was assisting, but, but he was the guy I spent the most time with. So what are some of the, uh, takeaways that you can talk about Chad, as far as, you know, some of the things that you experienced with him and that you look back on and think, oh, wow, that guy was amazing. The focus, the attention to detail, you know, People think about Chad and they think about, oh, distortion. They think about messing stuff up. But, but, but man, he's a great engineer. He's a great guy spatially, depth. He thinks about all of those things that, at least to me, make really great records. Uh-huh. And he gets more low end and separation than anybody I've ever heard. And I can't do it. I was around it. I saw it firsthand, but I don't hear music that way. And that was the other big takeaway too, you know? It's like you hire people because they hear things a certain way. There was a time where people would call me and they would say, oh, we want that Chad Blake sound. And I'm like, look, you know, I love Chad and I've worked with him for a long time. And I have a couple of things that I actually make sense to me that I still use to this day. But it's not me. I'm not Chad. You should hire Chad if that's who you want. But man, I mean, he's, there's so much. I mean, I can go on. he's He's a great guy. And I just learned it, and it was more approaches than actual, okay, use this piece of gear with this thing or, or, or the fearlessness of trying stuff out, mm-hmm. thinking about stuff all the time and listening to a lot of music all the time. Um, and all of those things I think I've still carried with me, you know, spending a lot of time listening to things. Um, I, got, I got into a whole vinyl resurgence in the last year and a half, and it's completely changed my perspective on things. So, you know, and, and that's all carryover from Chad. And, you know, I started taking photos because of him. He takes incredible photos and most people don't know that. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, so there, there's a lot, I, you know, from him, I took the efficiency part of it, the, the, the focus, man, he is so him and Mitchell Froome both, man, the focus is ridiculous. There's no dicking around. There's no like, oh, let's go order some coffee. Oh, let's go do this. Oh, wait a minute. Let's try 12 permutations of yeah. this. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. There, there's none of that. It was just like you showed up and you worked. And eight hours with those guys was t- like 12 hours with any other client I'd ever worked with. And even when I've done, because I've done records with Mitchell, you know, as, as his engineer, Mm-hmm. And and even then, you know, same thing, man. And and it's great. I, I, you know, I love that kind of intensity, that kind of focus. And it conjures up a kind of a different spirit to have in the studio. In a weird way, you know, it's like a fighter pilot mentality. That's the way I look at it. And because you're, you know, there there's some pressure to because, you know, it's like everybody's trying to catch the same wave. Yeah. And if everybody does catch the same wave, sorry about the double wave analogy here, but it's really kind of the way I think about this stuff sometimes, you know, it's like you catch this wave and, and if everybody's on it uh-huh. and everybody's surfing the same wave at the same time, man, there's really no better feeling at the time. And I really believe that translates to, to the, to the music as well. Exactly. And to, and to the records yeah. and to the performances, you know, I mean, your job as an engineer is to facilitate performances for people. And if you're not doing that, then if you're spending time screwing around with with EQ and with knobs and with all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 stopping the process because you're trying to get a kick drum sound or something, that totally defeats the purpose of you being there. And that's something I got from those guys as well. 
I, I, I did engineered this record for Mitchell and he was co-producing it with somebody, which was really odd. And this guy said, oh, well, telling the artist, you know, well, today we're just going to get some microphones. We're going to try out a few things here and there. We're going to just experiment. Tomorrow we'll start doing the real work. Uh-huh. And Mitchell's sitting there and he's got a pencil and he's not saying a word. He's just sitting there and he's tapping the pencil and spinning it and kind of playing with it until the other guy says his thing. We ended up cutting two whole tracks that day. So, wow, you know, it's, it's just one of those, and today, especially with this, with the focus on cost and studio time and studio expense, if you want to go into a real room and, and, and get a band sound, you know, in a, in a good studio, you have to be prepared and you got to be ready to go at this point because you're not, you don't have the budget to spend, you know, a month at a studio most of the time, you know, you might have enough money to do five days at a studio. Or three days. Yeah. You know? And and so when you do that, you have to maximize your time. So how do you do that? You be prepared and you have a game plan going in. And even if it varies a little bit as you get in there, at least, you know, at least you're going for something. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mr. John Paterno on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Time to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio Technica. And, you know, for us, for our family, spring break is, is coming up and we're getting ready uh, to fly this weekend, actually. And we're going to jump on an airplane for a number of hours. And, you know, when you're flying and you want to listen to music or watch a movie or, hey, maybe you're listening to this podcast. I don't know. I know all of you are familiar with that other company who make noise-canceling headphones that are everywhere. And if you've ever thought, well, you know, I need a pair of headphones for listening on the airplane uh, that are noise-canceling, but I'm not going to buy that company's stuff. You might want to check out the ATH MSR7NC headphones uh, from Audio Technica, which combine the high res audio technology and design features from the original ATH MSR7 with newly developed active noise canceling technology to bring you the ultimate listening experience. So, what they've done is they've outfitted these with uh, what they call their true motion drivers. These are 45 millimeter drivers. And the point of that is to, is to deliver you distortion-free audio reproduction with an extended frequency response. Uh, there's a miniature microphone, and it's incorporated into the top of each ear cup to pick up ambient noise that can then be blocked by an appropriate sound-canceling signal when the active noise-canceling function is activated. Uh, having the microphone on top, of course, instead of on the side of the housing, ensures consistent noise cancellation, which is unaffected by the user's head movement or by wind noise. And each ear cup also has an acoustic vent, which is ideally positioned on the side of the housing, 90 degrees from the mic, to enhance tuning without negatively affecting sound quality. The result is consistent high-res audio reproduction, whether in active or passive noise-canceling mode. The headphones come with two detachable cables, which I completely love. One of them is just a standard cable, and the other one has inline controls and a microphone for use with smartphones, which is really cool. And an internal 3.7-volt lithium polymer battery powers the active noise-canceling function and can easily be recharged using the included USB charging cable. So that's super cool. So if you're uh, looking for some noise-canceling headphones, I think you should uh, take a listen to these, see what you think. These are the ATHMS R7NCs from Audio Technica. So that's that. Let's get back to our interview with John Paterno here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You've worked with one of my favorite drummers of all time, Steve Gadd, who had a very big impact on me as a young drummer, and I can play nowhere near like him. <laughs> Nobody can. <laughs> Nobody can. I mean, yeah. I, I, I have these memories of being in my, uh, how old was I? 18, 19 years old. 
I think it was 19 years old. Uh, I was working in Guitar Center in San Francisco, a job of which I got fired from. Uh-oh. And uh, I smoked at the time, and you could smoke in a public building in California in 1989. <laughs> I just remember sitting in the drum department watching Steve Gadd videos back-to-back -back all day long, <laughs> chain-smoking, watching Steve going, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with a guy like Steve, I mean, obviously Steve is, everybody knows who he is. Mm -hmm. Most people know, know who he is. Maybe if you're, you know, at a, a certain age, you don't. But he's a very uh, well-known, well uh, respected musician. But um, he plays a type of music that is not exactly, you know, um, commercial. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to working on a record like that, budget-wise, how does it compare to, like, making uh, a more popular record oh it it doesn't i mean especially now even a more popular record you know even those budgets are down and and it's that thing of like it's a cool project to be involved in and you know how much i mean i go through this a lot with people sometimes it's just a matter of well what can you afford and and if it feels like okay within that time frame that you want me that that I can actually still feel like I can take care of my bills with it. I mean, I'm not going to get rich on it, but but you know what? It it it's a great experience. And you know, I got to record. It's not only Steve Gadd on that record too, man. It's Michael Landau, who's who I'm a guitar player, and you know, and I've known Mike for a long time, and he's the one that got me involved in that record because we had done some stuff years ago, and he's always been, you know, we've always had a great relationship, Mike and I. And but but there's Larry Goldings on keyboard, Jimmy Johnson on bass, Walt Fowler on on horn. I mean, it's an amazing band. So as a musician and as a fan of music and as somebody who loves to to be around performances and great and and make records like that, I mean, it was it's kind of a no-brainer. It's just like, you know, how could you not do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it was really fun. And again, it was just, you know, set it up. We, re we tracked it in, you know, I think four days, the whole record. And those guys didn't even have the tunes worked out. So I'm working on sounds. They're working on tunes. Nobody counted off the record. There was not one count off ever. It was just like, okay, I think they're getting ready to, re to, to track this. So I would pop it in a record and within 30 seconds, they just start. Huh. And the whole record went that way. One tune, they vamped on the beginning and I missed the very, very start of it. You know, so what did we do? We faded up the intro. We made it a fade up and there was enough room there before they got into the head to do that. And you know, it was great. The spirit was great. That record, the Soraya record, the, there, there's been there's been several where it's just like the spirit is just so good. And, you know, I, I consider myself as part, I want to say as as a musician per se, but but I'm part of that whole creative thing when that happens. Again, it's that wave, everybody getting on the same page, everybody moving forward. And that ability to put it into record when people are feeling it, that is something that that is starting to get lost, especially in this world where, you know, you're going to take it and cut it up into little pieces anyway, or, or create a loop <laughs> out of it. I mean, you know, I mean, and there are those kinds of records too, where, you know, you get them or you get projects and it's just like the drummer's not good. So what do you do? You know, then you have to sit there and make it happen. And that's a whole other set of skills on top of being able to engineer. You know, there's the engineer and get out of the way or be a part of it in a, in a way that, that enhances the thing. And then there's the engineer part where it's like, okay, this isn't good and I have to undo this or I have to turn this into something. That's you having to, 
you know, here's something that showed up and, and, you know, there are elements about it I like, but there are elements about it that I need to do something with. Like, I think I, I, I've sustained an okay career out of a lot of repeat clients over mm-hmm. the years. And I always like, look at that as, well, either they think I'm the only choice or, or they really like working with me. <laughs> um, you know, some people do stuff out of habit, you know, and you don't really mm-hmm. know what their, their motivations are. But um, anyways, um, is that helped you a lot? Do you have a lot of repeat clients or, or is it a lot more just like a continuous flow of one-offs because there's just where well, you live, there's just so many, there's so much it's, of everything. It's, there've been runs with people, you know, it's like you get caught up in this little, you know, you end up in these, in this little tribe and this little tribe works, you know, for a bit. And then that tribe disbands and then you end up in this whole other thing. And again, maybe that's, maybe that's the wave analogy. Maybe that's this, you know, maybe that's my trough analogy again. Maybe that's the theme of this is catching the wave. It's cat. Yeah. Waves, sine waves, ocean waves. So, you know, but like, you know, like Roger Manning, I've mixed three records for him. And we're talking about possibly doing a fourth, which I hope I haven't jinxed by, by announcing it right now. <laughs> um, you know, so, so there are people like him. There are people who I've done some mastering for who they come back to me on a regular basis. And, you know, and then there's a bunch of one-off things. And, and, but some of those one-off things are, I don't know if they're, they're money-based or if, you know, who knows? I mean... I've done some things where I wouldn't want to work with that person again after being through it too, you know? I mean, that's kind of, and maybe they felt the same way. Have you ever fired a client? Have I ever fired a client? There was one person that I worked with and I was producing this thing for her and it just got way out of hand. It was taking forever to get done and it got way out of hand and I'm just like, look, I can't deal with this anymore. And I just gave her the files. We had some little agreement in place and- and that was that. And the record eventually came out and shipped plywood. And and that was it. You move on. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I've had good relationships with most of the people I've worked with. And and I mean, at least I hope I have. I, I, I think I have. So, you know, but there are those occasional things you don't, you don't, you don't jive with, you know. I mean, Kevin Killen once told me, never take a gig just for the money. And the times that I've done that, it's been difficult. And, you know, it's been really difficult because... You know, I was sitting there with a producer where the, the bass player is playing a flat seven and the piano player is playing a major seven. And I'm going, do you not hear this? You know, do, do you do you not hear that? Well, what do you mean? Oh, well, okay. Piano player, play a, play a flat seven on that chord when you, when you go through. Okay. And they do. And suddenly it like, and the producer looks at me and goes, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so it's just like, man, I took this gig. I just, you know, I needed some dough and, and. And it was great because they contacted me. We want someone who can fuck up drums like Chad Blake. That's literally what they said. We want someone who can fuck up drums like Chad Blake. And I was like, nope. I said, I said, I, you know, I said, any monkey can put a distortion box on something. I said, I don't sound like Chad. I said, and so no, I don't think this is the right thing for me. And I hung up and then they called me back and they said, well, you know, we, we phrased that the wrong way. Now we think we really want you to do it, blah, blah, blah. Well, what do you want? And I'm just like, okay. So I picked some number that I didn't think they would go for. And they did. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, this is, this is, you know, this goes back, I don't know, probably over 10 years ago, but still I ended up doing it. So I spent 30 days on it and it was just, it was just silly. How do you filter clients? Cause I mean, I would imagine that, you know, where you live, 
you live you live in in and around Los Angeles. Yeah. Yep. So there is a ton of artists, right? Right. And it, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry wants to be somebody. So <clears throat> how do you get through that and kind of try to suss out what's well, it what's it, legitimate? It, it depends. It depends on on what I'm being asked to do. You know, some I, I write with people too. So sometimes it's you know, I mean, that's that's a Confederate money situation where you just you're going to invest some time with somebody, whether you you know either if you think they're an artist or you think you can write some good songs together, mm-hmm. and you know, so so that sometimes takes a little bit of time to sort out, figure out if they're you know if it's a shiny object syndrome situation where it's like they well they're just going to do this until something that seems more promising goes you know because God forbid somebody has to do a little work and spend a little time and thought you know, especially at that stage. And I've had a couple of people like that that I've written with and, you know, and then I don't hear from them for six months. And then suddenly it's like, hey, I'm back in town. We should get together. We should do something. And then we get together and then I don't hear from them again for months. So there's people like that. And then, you know, sussing that out is kind of difficult sometimes, you know, because people like that, they're talented to a certain degree, but they just don't have any focus. And and trying to get somebody to focus sometimes is very, very difficult. You know, lunch is always a good thing for me. You learn a lot by sitting down with people and just hanging out and having a little meal and talking about their background and figuring out what their influences are and, and what kind of music they're into and and what they really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like that, a date. Yeah, it's usually my first filter, you know, that and 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 sitting down and doing a writing session. If 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 someone wants me to mix something then of course let me hear some roughs if someone wants me to track drums you know like i got called to to do two days of drum tracking last december and so that wasn't as big a deal it was just like okay well what are you going for and i'll bring a bunch of mics and some gear that i know will offer me some flexibility and we'll we'll make that happen so so that kind of stuff you're not too attached to, you know, that that might be a little bit more of your waiter scenario when you're just being called just to record an instrument for a day. Um, you know, I got called to record a pedal steel on the last Bee Gees record with Greg Lease playing pedal steel. And, you know, this was one tune. And so I showed up and I kind of, you know, made it sound good. And we did it via Skype. I met Barry Gig over Barry Gibb over the, um, you know, over the Skype. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool, but you know, but those kinds of dates that that's, you know, and that's just, that's just a random call, you know? Do you have a manager? I don't. I tried to pursue it a couple of times. I've had a couple of people who seemed like they were interested in managing me over the years. And I didn't really, I didn't, the scene just didn't seem right. You know, I mean, I'm friends with a couple of managers. The circumstances haven't been right. I mean, one guy, well, Frank McDonough. I, I like Frank. He's a really cool dude. And um represents a few people there that uh, have been on the show. Yeah, he represents some of my closest friends too, actually. So what, Andrew, Joe. Andrew and Joe, yeah. Yeah. I mean uh, and, and didn't he and hasn't Ross signed up with him? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um but um and he and he used to and and Sylvia Massey. Yeah. Ah, used and, to used to represent Sylvia. And he does John Fields and he does a few other people and um but but I had a meeting once with Frank years ago. And I hadn't really had a record that had done super well, but he sat me down and and he was cool. And he's like, okay, who produced Super Unknown? And I said, Michael Beinhorn. He goes, who mixed it? He goes, Brendan O'Brien. He goes, who recorded it? 
Do you know who recorded it? No. And I knew it was Jason Corsaro, New York engineer. Uh-huh. And, um, but he said, A&R people don't know that. He goes, so unless you're in a position where you're, you've either mixed it or, or produced it, he said, you're going to have a really hard time getting somebody's attention. And I thought that was an interesting piece of advice, you know, an interesting thing. And, and granted, he didn't take me on. I think he bought me lunch. So thank, thanks, Frank. Um, <laughs> but he's been a great resource over the years. If I have questions, he's been really nice to answer questions for me. And, you know, something comes up, hey, man, what do you think of this? And he's been totally cool. He's a really sweet guy. So, you know, so going back and forth, there's been a few other people I've met. One guy had me in a box, like when we sat down for lunch, he goes, well, I don't see you as a producer, mixer, engineer. I see you as an engineer, mixer, producer. And I just thought, man, if you got that kind of hierarchy going on already, then then how am I ever going to get something? You know, how am I ever going to get anything? Or, you know, are you going to put me up for anything other than what you see as, as the box I live in? And, you know, I've never specialized in anything in my career. I mean, I've done... You know, I've done indie bands. I've worked on, with Robin Ford and with Steve Gadd. I've worked on pop records, you know, with Robbie Williams and Eros Ramazzotti. And, and you know, I, I did the Ally McBeal TV show for, for a long time. I did a lot of the music on that. Uh, wrote it or? No, no, I, I, I recorded and mixed it. But the band was Pete Thomas on drums from Elvis Costello's band. Davey Farragher on bass, who now plays with Elvis, played with Elvis for a long time. Yeah, Val played Mc- with Cracker. Yeah, Val McCallum on guitar, who's brilliant. Great keyboard players always, but that was another boot camp thing where it's just like you 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 had to record two or three songs in a day, and you would put the tune up, and we'd record the whole song or we'd record a good portion of the song, and you know record the vocals, comp the vocals, mix the whole thing, mix it in stems for the stage. So it was really great experience to get stuff up and to get things going. But you know, as a career choice, as opposed to slogging it out and finding a band, maybe that's something I should have done. But at the time, it was a really great experience to foster this whole other set of skills, and that's really what a lot of these choices come down to. You know, it's like you're going to get something out of every gig you do. It's just a matter of how it factors into the big picture. Nowadays, I always think the the concept, and maybe I'm just naive, and maybe I'm just not high enough on the totem pole of of recording world life, but I'm of the opinion that the whole point thing is just a lost cause. Well, getting points. Uh, so, getting, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I, I, you know, how many records you have to look at? How many records you have to sell to recoup? And if it's if it's a re, if it's you, you have to be armed with a lot more knowledge. You need to know what the budget is. You need to know a lot. You need to know what the budget is. You need to know how much they're spending on the record. You almost need to know what kind of advance the band got. Because the band got a hundred grand, and they're saying fifty grand to make the record. They still have to recoup that hundred grand before you're going to get paid anything. You know what I mean? They have to recoup mm-hmm. their whole advance. And if the record's not going to sell all that great, and the band's going to go out on the road and make their money, quote unquote, on the road, or if they're going to take that other fifty grand and go build a studio for themselves or whatever it is they do, then at that point, it's you know, does having half a point on something or a point, does it make a difference? Probably not. And at that point, you you probably say to yourself, okay, well, I just want to charge more upfront if I can or get as much money as I can on the upfront because I know I'm not going to see that much on the back end, if anything, on the back end. Yeah. You know, so so that's, you know, that's always something that, that you have to consider, especially 
you know, nowadays. At this point, for me, I just want stuff to come out that I've done. I, I, I mixed a record last year for somebody that I'm really happy with. And we finished it in February and they mastered it in June and it's still not out yet. So here's something that I've done that I think is really cool that I'm proud of. And it's sitting on the sideline that nobody's heard. So I got paid. Yeah, but but I get nothing. You know, there's nothing else for me at that point until the damn thing comes out. And granted, I mean, even if it if it doesn't sell anything, but but as long as a couple of people hear it, all it takes is one person to be interested in what happened with it. And that gets you on to the next gig. So that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I mean, I've been really fortunate with friends recommending me for stuff over the years. Really fortunate. Uh, um, musicians or other engineers? Other engineers. Um, you know, Andrew Sheps has been great at saying, I can't do this. Or, or, or even, I may not be right for this. You know, would you be interested in doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, Barisi's recommended me for things. Ryan Hewitt's recommended me for, for things here and there. And there's been a bunch of people. And it's been great. And, and I, you know, I hope I give back to them in some way, even if it's not a direct correlation, but I hope I've given back to all those guys in some way as well, you know, whether it be just, you know, advice, quote unquote, or just, just, you know, just talking about things or sometimes people just need to talk through things and say, oh, hey man, you know, what am I doing here? Or what am I doing there? And sometimes just having a good voice to bounce something off of is a big deal. You know, we all help each other out when we can, you know, and that that's the other interesting thing about the circle that you start developing, you know, of your close friends or of people that, you know, that you respect and have respect for you. It's, it's, I'm, I'm curious about something that uh, you have on your website that uh, Mr. Bonsai wrote about you being known for your attention to detail. What did he dub you? Mr. Meticulous. Why uh-huh. is that? He called me that because I did an interview with him years ago for, I think, EQ Magazine. Okay. And he called Phil, the manager of the Sound Factory at, this t- at the time, Phil, Phil McConnell, and said, I, I, need a, I need like a tagline for John. What can I say about him or what can you tell me about him? And Phil told him that I was always meticulous with my notes and with my tape boxes and stuff like that. So that's where Mr. Meticulous kind of came from. Um, and and on the organizational front, I was I've always been kind of that way. Even my Pro Tool sessions, and when I pass things on to people, you know, shit's organized, and you hit play, and and it's there. You know, it's not you're not looking for things. It's just the way. You know, I may be a slob in other areas of my life, but in certain areas, I'm kind of I wouldn't call myself a slob, but I just I got a lot of stuff around. But but there are certain areas where you know, again, I and I honestly think that comes from from my assisting days from, from working with Chad and working with, you know, Joe Ciccarelli, Ciccarelli, I assisted for a bit. And then he hired me to do a record up in, up in San Francisco, actually a band called box set at the old coast recorders building. Yeah. Toast. It was called at the time. It was toast at the time. Okay. I was working at either audio images or cutting edge audio. One of those two pro audio dealers. And Mm -hmm. uh, Joe wanted to check out a mic and I knew Joe because Joe had done a record for a band I was in uh, called Seven Day Diary. Ah. He did an EP with us that came out on a reprise. Mm -hmm. Um, So Joe was in town, and uh, I think he knew I was over there, so he called me, and I came over to that session and dropped Ah. the mic off and hung out for a bit. I may have met you. I don't remember. We we may have. If it was was the tracking portion, probably, because that's what I did. And Jakir King was there. I mean, it was like... It was when Jakir was still living in the Bay Area. So that's how long ago it was. Um, yeah. 
but but doing a director with Joe was great, man. I mean, that was a, that was another really interesting experience. You know, he hired me to engineer, and he, that dude's intense too. You know, and and it was in in really good and interesting ways. And and there are a couple of things that happened on that session that I still do to this day because of him. Um, and then For there's example uh, getting a drum sound. I always set up a kick and a snare, and I move it around the room until it sounds the best that it sounds. And then I set up the rest of the kit around that. And, huh. and you do that and everything, it makes you look like a genius. <laughs> it does because you just find the sweet yeah, spot in the yeah. room. I mean, if, and if you think about it, it totally makes sense. You're, you're trying to, to record an acoustic event in an acoustic space and every room has a good and a bad sounding spot. Every room does. So I mean, I don't know if he even still does that, but I still do it because I was so impressed with it at the time. And then the other funny thing that that I really learned from him, he's constantly fiddling with stuff, take to take to take. So like he was always in the middle of the take. He's like changing the snare drum sound, EQing it a little bit. And then we'd end up editing the song together. And okay, we take the verse from take three and we take this chorus from take seven and then we take this from this and... And every time, you know, I know visually the snare was definitely different. The EQ is different. But by the time you put the thing together and you do all the overdubs and all this other stuff, it didn't really matter. It really didn't. So it taught me to not be as precious about stuff. And and that that was a really valuable lesson to me. You know, that whole idea of setting something like, oh, no, don't. It's wrong. You fix it. And that was something, you know, if it's wrong to you at the time, you fix it. And, you know, and in a weird way, it makes sense. Like on snare drum, if you're not out there tuning it the entire time, maybe the tone's changing as the record goes along. Maybe he's hearing yeah. that. Maybe he's reacting to it. I, I, you know, I don't really know. But, but it was really fascinating to see because I, I had never really thought about that. It was just like, oh, machines and record don't do anything. Not him. <laughs> it was awesome. It was really yeah. great, man. I, and I, I loved working with him. He's a, he's a great dude. I was working with him as a musician before I was an engineer. And, you know, definitely him and uh, Larry Hirsch mm-hmm. and uh, a guy named Gil Norton, mm-hmm. three guys that, like, even just from a musician standpoint, like, now that I, or since I've been a, a recording engineer, uh, those experiences, like, those early experiences, and I'm, I'm sure you'd, you'd uh, agree that, no matter who it is, some of those early experiences we we have, it's like eating at a restaurant for the first time. You're remembering, oh yeah, I love that particular dish there. They make it like this. Um, my memories of of Joe and and Larry and and Gil are like mm-hmm. cemented in my brain. Oh, definitely, definitely, and that's how I feel about Chad as well. But but you know, I had one of the best experiences I ever had as an assistant was a one day session I did, and. I don't know what happened that day. I was having a shitty day and I was trying to do the best for the client. There was something going on at the studio or some scheduling thing or somebody didn't zero the console right and they ran me around in circles and it, you know, they kind of did it on purpose and it pissed me off. And the engineer at the end of the session said to me, and his name was Tave Mote and he's passed away, unfortunately, because I've always wanted to contact him. He said to me, always leave the session better than you found it. Always leave the situation better than when you showed up. And it was such a powerful thing to say. And, you know, at the time, it really hit me because he obviously saw I was like annoyed and kind of stressed out. 
And it was just the sweetest thing for somebody to say. And that's another thing that's really stuck with me my whole career. And it was just a one day thing. We were doing like background vocals on some random record or something. And, and it was, it was a really great piece of advice. And I've always tried to do that too. You know, maybe that plays into the Mr. Meticulous part as well. Hmm. It's like, you know, you do this thing, you do it to the best of your ability and you pass it on to somebody so that you're lightening their burden a little bit so that when they get it, they can do their best work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure people take pride in their work. It's not like they don't, but sometimes people don't think about, well, what happens in the next phase or what time, what happens when it goes on to the next, to the next person. Let me ask you to be a fortune teller for a bit. Mm -hmm. What do you foresee in the next five to 10 years for yourself and, or what would you like to have happen? Well, how would you like to deal with the next five to 10 years? Well, I mean, I would, I would absolutely love to be producing more and, and, and obviously working as much as I can. I really love what I do. What do I foresee happening? I, you know, it's such a weird time right now because artists are having a hard time getting their thing going. And then because of that, some of the, the ans- you know, all of the ancillary people involved are having a hard time. You know, I mean, look at Vance. Vance says he's doing 50 records a year. He's got to be doing it for the love of it because I'm sure they're not all paying his rate for the whole thing. But, but the, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, of the hard times maybe financially is that, is that there are opportunities if you're willing to take less money or if you're willing to find stuff that you're really passionate about. There, I think there's some great opportunities going forward. At some point, people are going to start getting sick of what's happening right now currently in music. It it, it always does. Trends always mm-hmm. happen. You know, disco happened and then metal happened. And then, you know, even, you know, I mean, rap is doing its arc and everything's kind of doing its its arc. It's interesting to see what might be the next thing. I mean, you know, there's this whole EDM thing. There are the way records sound right now on the radio. And and a lot of things I've been hearing lately, just the amount of just weird distortion on the whole thing. I kind of miss the days where people feel like, you know, or at least where I feel like as a listener, I'm invited into the record as opposed to, you know, screaming at me and 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 going, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I'm kind of hoping that trend kind of gets back. I hope it swings the other way where where records feel like you're being invited into the experience because that's what I grew up with. And that's what I really loved. And it's kind of a weird segue. Sorry, Matt, but, <laughs> but, but, no. but you're asking me about how I'm seeing the future and, and, and what I would like to see in the future. And, and so, you know, I think there's hope. I, I, I met this young amplifier builder who lives, um, lives up your way someplace. Um, and he's, I met him at the NAMM show and he was in his booth and there was nobody in his booth. And he had this great little amp that he had, you know, it looked cool. So I went up and asked a couple of questions. I'm like, Hey man, what, you know, what do you got going on here? And he was so into it. Oh yeah. I, I, I got these old vintage tubes and I got this old stuff, this old stock stuff and I'm, I'm making them out of octal tubes instead of you know, tubes with maybe two gain stages in them just because they're easier to find and I'm not necessarily using all eight stages in it. And and he goes, hey, do you want to play it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So he hands me this Wayne's World Squire Strat, literally, and I plug into it and it's like one of the best things I've played through in years. 
And the guy, he just got inspired by old amps and by old things and this desire to really make a connection. And I brought seven guitar players to him over the course of the name. Lyle Workman, I dragged Lyle to it. Uh, my friend James Santiago, uh, Mark Letary, the guitar player in Snarky Puppy. I brought all these people over just to hear it because I couldn't believe how good it was. And, and everybody looked at it and went, huh, uh, I'm like, play it. Just play it. Here's a guitar, play it. And everybody freaked out on it. So, <laughs> so there are these possibilities in the world. You know, there are people that are re-looking at things. And I really have a lot of hope with music for that. People are re-looking at things. And I'm not saying reinventing the wheel or going back and, and you know, having some like metal resurgence. But I'm saying looking at the things that are good about where we've come from and try to incorporate them into where you are going forward. And I think that's what this kid was doing with his amps. And they're called Otis Amps. And I think he's in, uh, is it Chico that's up near you? Yeah. I mean, that's it's not that close, but yeah, it's yeah, close. But yeah, it's, it's Northern California. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you you hear these kind of kooky things. I did a record with my friend Jeff Babco, who has a band called Cronuts. <laughs> and, um, but he spells it C-R-O-N-U-T-S. Tim, bass player Tim Lefebvre, um, a drummer named Lewis Cole. Tim Young is the guitar player. We recorded it at the Baked Potato, and he had three horn players as well. So we recorded it live at the Baked Potato. And it's a kooky Miles Davis electric period kind of thing with all these fun segues. And, you know, it was so much fun to do because we just went for it. And I think that it translates into the, into the record. And I'm hoping, again, for my future, that more of these kinds of things come up where I can, where you feel like people are just going for it. And there are bands that are doing it. I mean, Alabama Shakes, to me, sounds like one of those bands that, that you go hear them live and, and you go record them, and the basic thing is not that different. They're not fixing those records. They're, they're making those records. You, you talked about advice about you know not doing things for the money. Mm -hmm. And it seems that authenticity really comes across and it shows it shows in this guy's amps mm -hmm. it shows in a band like alabama shakes yep when th when people just kind of follow their their instincts about themselves it seems that success maybe it doesn't always follow but it it lately it seems to be that way mm -hmm. as opposed to okay let's make a formulaic record on the grid, blah, you know, right, and follow, you know, mm -hmm. all the establishment rules, right. But when you get passionate about something and, and follow your heart, it just seems that it it really can pay off in some respects. It can. I mean, all of us in this field, we have some level of creativity as well, and there's that side of us that we need to make sure we take care of. So just finding that balance and being able to continue to get paid for something that that's also really inspiring at the same time. Mm -hmm. granted that's been the trick it's just been it's just been harder the last 10 years it just has you know for most of us if people would just start valuing the whole music scene a little bit more it'll be better for all of us and you know value value financially and just value in general just just you know be able to nurture some artists be able to, i mean if you look at the whole the whole scenario now it's like even a you know record companies i've had a couple of discussions with people Recently, it's like record companies aren't signing bands anymore. They're signing a singer, and then they're putting a team of writers with them. Uh-huh. And they're trying to make that happen. And <sighs> so it... But see, so that doesn't bode well for, like, for that narrow thing that happens right now in pop music. Um, it, 
it bodes well for the people who want to develop their craft a little bit. Well, there's, the, I think there's the other side of it too that I always consider, and maybe this is just the, in in that I'm sure you've seen a few interviews with with Albini, and mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that always sticks with me about him is he just doesn't seem to care about playing a part in the traditional record business. Right. He's just operating and servicing bands and making a living. I mean, Jesus, I mean, the guy seems to be booked all the time mm-hmm. from it's that's my perception. Mm-hmm. I don't know that for a fact. And if you look at the rates on the website on the, at Electrical Audio, you get a glimpse of okay, well the studio costs this much and Steve's this much and you know, I mean, granted, he's got to pay for that studio and the nut that he's he's taken on. But sure, that's something I really uh, that that I really like. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when when I see the despair in the music industry as a whole, mm-hmm. I look at Steve and I think I like that. Yeah, I want to. You know, uh, part of me, you know, sometimes uh, like I'm not a I'm not a very uh, religious person. I've I've not a very, uh, I don't like to join things. <laughs> um, and I think that, uh, that, that sense of, uh, of Albini's approach appeals to me. So mm-hmm. when I hear about the, like, just, I'm kind of repeating myself when I hear about the despair, I just go, well, fuck that. Yeah. Let's, I'm just going to concentrate on small independent bands right? and treat that as my world. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's funny. I said to somebody recently about joining a, an organization that I got into music so that I didn't feel like I was in high school anymore. That was the whole point of like getting into music so that I didn't, what didn't feel like I was dealing with high school bullshit Mm -hmm. because a lot of these organizations are, they're just another version of, of high school. Um, you know what I mean? Just the hierarchy, all the politics and everything else. The Um, the clubs, the, the, yeah, the, I I know what you're saying. Um, and then I wanted to, to just leave you with one other thought too. I, I, mixed a record for Steve Picaro from Toto yeah. um, earlier this year and mixed it, mastered it. And when I sent him the mastering, he asked me to turn it down. He said, look, he goes, I totally get what you're going for here. He said, but I want to be able to turn up the volume and have it be a different experience. Like records have always been for me. And granted, he's, you know, he's older. He's an older guy. I know. I mean, he but, comes from that a generation. But he comes of from that generation. But I thought that was awesome because he actually he's took the time to listen and to, and to figure it out and to say, okay, look, I really love the way you've mixed my record, but I need to make sure that I can still have the experience I want to have. And then that's that's the way vinyl is, and I think that's why a lot of young people are getting into vinyl as well because it allows you that experience. And maybe it's because it's based on the limitations of of vinyl. As a medium, you know, you can't put it all the way up to zero. The needle will go flying out. So you have to yeah. make it up in other ways. And then the room gets involved and it becomes a whole different experience. I saw The Who play recently, a live, you know, live thing. The show was amazing. The sound was amazing. There were no subs. There's none of that annoying sub thing that hit you in the chest. The guitar sound was the best live guitar sound I've heard in ages. Wow. The guitar was just ridiculously good. Pete Townsend sounded amazing. So... These things are possible, but people have to want to just explore it a little bit more. And I think that people of a younger generation, the people who are really passionate about music are starting to see that. And I have a cousin who lives in the Bay Area who plays in a band. And and I think he's 
been exploring that as well. And he's in his 30s, I think, at this point, his early 30s. But but I think it's out there and I think it's percolating. And I think that it's just going to take a few things to really start bringing that back around again. You know, I mean, look what's going on in Nashville. There are people who are actually interested in more traditional country records, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, like you said, it's all this shit goes in cycles mm-hmm. and back to the wave. Yep. Yep. And sometimes the wave comes crashing in at a different uh, velocity yeah. Yeah. than it did the time before. So, nope, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for doing it. All right, man. Take care. You too. Thanks again. See ya. See ya. John Paterno on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Always good to have a good chat with a fellow engineer. Yes. Well, that's about it. We are out of time, and I'm looking for that music. Where are you, Cliff? There he is. Cliff Truesdell. Thank you, Cliff. Hey, and thanks, Chuck Smith. And thank you, Cole Williams. Appreciate your help. Also want to thank our sponsors, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, Gearslets.com, and Universal Audio. And of course, want to thank you, my audience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to me ramble. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.